are listening to the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing, specifically today, Piers Anthony's writing, as we get into For Love of Evil. I'm going to go ahead and tell you before we start that this is not going to be a love letter to Piers Anthony, so if you've come to this as a fan of Piers Anthony, you might be disappointed. Now, if you're wondering, Patrick, why are you covering Piers Anthony? He's practically a pedophile the way he writes. He's misogynistic. He's terrible. Well, listen, when I was in high school, I loved Piers Anthony, and he inspired me to write. And as I was trying to think of the next book to cover on the podcast, something that I could do in one episode, I couldn't do Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Absolutely not. And I didn't, I, I've lost interest in doing that. And I didn't want to do the bell jar because I can't do the bell jar in one episode. I would have to do a series on the bell jar. And the last two series I did, as expected, people just kind of stopped listening as much after the first couple of episodes. Anytime I do a series for a novel on the podcast, usually by the second episode, half of the same people come back and listen. So that's one of the reasons why I've done one episode stories and shit like that. But for this, I really wanted to have fun because I know that this book sucks. However, this is the first Pierce Anthony book that I ever read. And I was in the ninth grade, a freshman in high school. It was 2007, my last semester of the year, and I was in a production of the musical Camelot. So I didn't have a big part in it, didn't even have a speaking role in it. But I would read backstage, and I vividly remember reading For Love of Evil in the back of that stage. And also, if you're not familiar with my writing, by the way, if you'd like to support the podcast, go buy my podcast. Go buy my podcast. Go buy my books on Kindle or on paperback on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. You'll find Demise of the Trinity on there, the book that was actually quite inspired and influenced by For Love of Evil. And we'll get into that later. But if you'd like to support the podcast in a more passive way, you can listen to my music on Spotify or wherever you stream music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. I have ambient, I have jazz, I have experimental rock, and I have the acoustic white boy shit that people like to listen to. But back to Piers Anthony. I read so many Piers Anthony books in high school, and I barely scratched the surface for his bibliography, and I figured one day I'd get around to reading everything. I'd get around to finishing the Xanath series, and I'd keep reading them, and I'd keep loving them forever. Because before Bret Easton Ellis came along in my life, Piers Anthony was probably my favorite writer. And I, I kept reading him until my, my, I finished my, my freshman year of college. I remember having a copy of one of the early Xanath novels in my English, my, in my English 1102 course. And I think my professor was 
almost aghast at it. She didn't say anything about it, though. But as I got older and as people kind of got more attuned to things that people who were over the age of, I don't know, 12 should write about, they started to look back at Piers Anthony and see him as kind of creepy. Now, I think that part of that is honestly the fact that Piers Anthony is appealing to his audience, and his audience is mostly teenage boys. I mean, he has teenage girls in there too, don't get me wrong, but he has a lot of young fans. And another part of it, I think, is that he has an antiquated way of thinking. He's an older guy. I mean, he's ancient. And he's not a conservative. He's actually pretty liberal. I remember in the back of one of his books, he talked about being a a Clinton supporter. And he's, as, as far as I know, he's very environmentally conscious. He's an atheist. He's someone who... In terms of politics, if you're a liberal, you'd probably want him on your side. But when it comes to sex, I think that we need to, to be able to separate author from the character's perspectives. I'm not trying to apologize or make excuses for Piers Anthony because, yes, he's done things that are straight up creepy. But if a transgressive author like Brett Easton Ellis did something like he did, I wonder what the reaction would be. Because while Brett Easton Ellis wrote American Psycho and got accused of being misogynist in the 90s, he still gets accused of that. And he received death threats as a result of that book. What if someone more literary and who had the the kind of would you say the the clout to do so what if someone like that did something like Piers Anthony and not write a fantasy novel but write something that was really transgressive in the way that Piers Anthony has with with like a book like Pornocopia and i'm again Maybe Piers Anthony is a creep. Maybe he is disgusting. Maybe he does think it would be okay for older men or older women to have sex with children. I don't know. From what I have read, I've never read a a book that depicted uh, an underage sex scene with his characters, as, as far as I remember, with the exception of book seven of this series incarnation is immortality although she's not a child i believe she's 17 and she has sex with a much older man someone on on reddit said he could be old enough to be her father no that man in that book could be old enough to be that woman that young woman's grandfather and yeah it's weird it's creepy I don't know what Piers Anthony would have to say about it, though, because he hasn't given a lot of interviews. Uh, he's notoriously kind of crotchety at this point. And if you've ever heard him speak within the past few years, he sounds like an old guy. I mean, he's old. There's no getting around that. So the fact that he keeps, he keeps putting out books is crazy, but from what I can tell, most of the stuff that he puts out is not very good. And I think he gave up on putting out quality prose and dialogue a a long time ago. And for a while, I thought, 
Well, maybe the Incarnations of Immortality series is fine. I didn't like every single book in the series. And it would be interesting to cover the first book in the series uh, about death, especially since the TV series Dead Like Me is partially inspired by that. But the whole concept of the Incarnations of Immortality series is that all these different entities, whether it be death, Satan, time, they're all replaceable. So the, the man in this story... His name is Perry, and I believe he's a monk. And he becomes Satan. This was something that in partially inspired elements of Demise of the Trinity, where a character in that book replaces Lucifer as Satan. If you haven't read the book, I'll try not to spoil it for you. <laughs> but, yeah, Lilith is also in this book. And Lilith is a character in my novels and a lot of other people's novels, but the way that Piers Anthony wrote her was just pure sex. And yes, she has a personality, but she's mainly used as bait. And, you know, it's a fictional book. And I won't make apologies for something that you think is sexist. However, I haven't read this book in its entirety. I'm certainly not going to do it now, but I haven't read it since 2007. I never revisited it other than reading the first few pages maybe last year to see where things were in terms of writing quality, and I'm pretty sure it sucks. (laughs) That has been the case with a lot of notorious authors from my past. And right before we get into this, I want to say that quality writing is different for everybody. And the fact that a lot of people think that E.L. James is a good writer, well, that should tell you everything because I couldn't get past page six of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I picked it up out of curiosity, as many people did. But it was just so poorly written, I I couldn't get into it. And maybe that'll be the case here, but we're kind of making fun of Piers Anthony. So if you've come here as a Piers Anthony fan and you're going to get pissed off if I say something bad about him, I implore you to not continue listening. Let's start on page one. And we're going to skip around this book, obviously, if I'm covering it in one episode. There was a knock at the door, so hesitant as to be almost an audible. Perry opened it. A girl stood with it, without, huddled, and childlike. Her flowing honey hair was bound back from her face by a fillet, a narrow band of cloth that circled her bare head. Her frightened eyes seemed enormous, the iris's gray-green. I am Jolie, she whispered, her hands making a tentative gesture toward her bosom. She had come! Suddenly, Perry's mouth felt dry. He had known she would, yet doubted. He had wanted her to, yet been afraid. Now the test was upon him. Please come in, he said, his voice sounding considerably more assured than he felt. She gazed at him. Her face crumbled. 
Oh, please, my lord. Please let me go. I never did you harm or even spoke ill of you. I never meant to give offense, and if I have, I apologize abjectly. Please, please do not enchant me. She put her face in her hands, sobbing. Perry was taken aback. I'm not going to enchant you, Jolie, he protested. I have no grievance against you. Those marvelous eyes peeked between her fingers. No? None. I know you've done me no harm. I want only to... He found no appropriate word. If you could come in, I will explain. And I will explain the flaws in this first page. So, the first thing that gave me pause was the fact that there's a sentence that I didn't make a mistake when I read it, and I kind of thought I did at first. A girl stood without, comma, huddled and childlike. She stood without what? Clothes? What did she not have? Her flowing honey hair was bound back from her face by a fillet. F-I-L-L-E-T. I almost said fillet because I really wasn't sure, but I want to go back to the first line of this too because a good novel is going to pay special attention to how it opens. There was a knock at the door, so hesitant as to be almost inaudible, Perry opened it. I feel like I'm reading RPG instructions here, but another thing There was a knock at the door, comma, so hesitant as to be almost inaudible. This guy is breaking every fucking creative writing rule that you heard in school, isn't he? I mean, he's starting with a knock, someone knocking at the front door. It's almost like an alarm clock going off. So hesitant as to be almost inaudible. I mean, Jesus Christ. This, this is something that a creative writing professor would mark the fuck up. And in italics, she had come. I mean, it leaves me speechless almost. The fact that he's using italics, she had come. It's, there's just a lot wrong with that. And if you don't understand why, well... Maybe you shouldn't be listening. All right. Her tears ceased, but not her fright. The sorcerer said, I would not be hurt. She said something, she said somewhat defiantly. My father spoke truly, Perry said. I fear only to talk with you. Please come in. It is warm inside. She hesitated. A gust of wind tugged at her garment, and she shivered. It was evident her best dress. I, I read that wrong. Uh, it was evidently her best dress, but it was somewhat soiled linen, given shape only by the cord at her waist. Such his syntax and everything so awkward. It was an adequate protection against the chill of the fall evening. You order me, Lord, Perry grimaced. I am no lord, Jolie. I am the sorcerer's apprentice. 
I am hardly older than you. I cannot order you, nor would I if I could. I only want your company this night. Her face crumpled again. Oh, please spare me this. To you it may be nothing, but to me it's my life. Perry had realized there would be difficulty, but he had not properly appreciated its nature before. The girl believed that she was doomed if she set foot inside his house. He could let her go, but that would mean the loss of what might be his sole opportunity and failure in his first significant challenge. The sorcerer had little sympathy sympathy for failure of any type. How can I persuade you? That I mean you no harm, he asked. I swear to you that I will do nothing to you without your leave, and that I will not force that leave-giving. Will you swear by the Blessed Virgin Mary, she asked disbelievingly. I swear it by the Blessed Virgin Mary. Dear God. She watched him for some sign of disaster, but there was none. He had been smitten. He had not been smitten for false swearing, therefore it must be safe. Still, her doubt loomed almost tangibly. What does that mean, almost tangibly? Jesus, come in before you freeze, he urged. I have a fire within. That did it. Her shivering was not entirely from fright. Remember, you swore, she reminded him nervously. By the virgin, he agreed. She stepped in through the doorway, her eyes fixing on the fireplace within. There was indeed fire, radiating, flickering heat. He had banked it so that it gave off little smoke and warmed the chamber without depleting the air. It was one of the arts the sorcerer had taught him. Jolie knelt before it, extending her hands to the warmth. Now the threadbare nature of her garment became evident. The light of the fire shone through, showing her thin arms, and there were holes. But she was oblivious for the moment. That warmth was all she craved. This is reading like porn, for God's sake. Perry closed and barred the door against the wind. It was of stout oak and chinked around the edges, but some drafts still leaked through. He went quietly to his pantry, which which was a niche to the side, separated by a dark linen curtain. He brought out a loaf of bread, a cup of butter, and a jar of blackberry jam, which sounds really good. He set those on a tray and added a pitcher of goat milk, which doesn't sound as good, and a knife and two mugs. He brought these to the main chamber and set them on the wooden table. I have food, he said. Jolie tore her rapt gaze from the fire and turned to him. For a moment her eyes met his. Then she turned away without speaking. For you, he clarified, picking up the sharp knife. She looked again and screamed. She lurched to her feet and ran for the door. She would have been out and away, but the bar balked her. No, wait, Perry cried, dropping the knife and hurrying to join her. I meant, perceiving herself trapped, Jolie turned on him a stricken countenance, then then fainted. 
He caught her as she fell. It was no ruse. Her body slumped in a ragdoll fashion. He had to transfer his hold from her shoulders to her midsection as she sagged. She was so light, she seemed indeed like a doll. There was little flesh on her bones. He tried to walk to a stool, but couldn't make it work. Finally, he picked her up and carried her. He eased her down by the fireplace, propping her against the warm hearth wall, then fetched pillows for comfort. Ah, what a gentleman. In a moment, she recovered. Her eyes popped open, and she glanced about like a snared bird. We've gotten 20 minutes into this podcast, and I find this so unbearable. Jesus Christ. You are safe, Jolie, Perry said quickly. You swooned, but you were safe. The knife! Then it burst upon him. The knife. He had been about to slice the bread, and she had thought he meant to use it on her. No wonder she had spooked. I gave my oath, he reminded her. No harm to you. But I was cutting bread for you. But the sacrifice... My oath, he repeated, by the Holy Virgin. You can trust that. Yes, she agreed dubiously. I'm going to cut you a slice of bread, he said carefully. Or you may do it yourself if you prefer. No, she said, evidently afraid that the knife would turn in her hand and seek her innocent blood. Perry picked up the knife slowly and oriented on the hard loaf. He sawed through it, severing a thick slice, and set down the knife. Jolie's eyes remained locked on the knife throughout. She relaxed only when it left his hand. Would you like butter on it, he inquired, or jam? Oh, my lord, she demurred. I am no lord, he repeated firmly. Call me Perry. Oh, I could not, Perry smiled a trifle grimly. Call me Perry, he said, touching the knife. Perry, she cried, shrinking into her dress. That's better, he said. You know, I am only a year older than you. I see you as an equal. But you are the sorcerer's son. Butter or jam, he asked, or both. For me, she simply could not believe. For you... I will have a separate slice. Here, I will cut it now. He picked up the knife. Again, her eyes locked on it, and her breath became shallow. It was as though he were torturing the loaf. I will put the knife away, he said as he finished. He carried it back to the pantry and set it behind the curtain, safely out of sight. Only then did the girl's breathing revert to normal. He used a wooden spatula to spread butter generously on both slices of the coarse black bread, then poured jam on each. He picked up the slices and walked to her. What is this word? He could just say offering. Instead, he says proffering. For you, he repeated. I will sit on the other side of the fire and eat my own. Hesitantly, her tiny hand came up, as if ready to dart away at the first sign of menace. Her whole arm was shaking.
He set the bread firmly in it, then took his place on the other side as promised. This kind of prose and dialogue is a good example of why I write everything in the present tense and also from the first person perspective. I try to think of how a, a character thinks, how they would describe their own actions, if they would even need to describe their own actions, and so forth. And when you are writing from a third person perspective, you're having to detail a lot of things that characters themselves may not even notice. And I think that writers like Piers Anthony kind of get away thinking about the details, even though I used to think he was so cut and dry with the way he wrote. As I'm reading this, I'm seeing he's actually detailing things that are unnecessary for the narrative. Anyway. Hesitantly, her tiny hand came up, as if ready to dart away at the first sign of menace. Her whole arm was shaking. He set the bread firmly in it, then took his place on the other side as promised. He had been uncertain how to proceed, but now he felt more confident. Jolie, I would like you to understand me. May I tell you my story? Yes, Lord, she said. Then, at his glance, as his glance went to the table where the knife had lain, Perry, he smiled. You learn quickly, Jolie. That is one of two reasons I asked for you. You gave your oath, she cried. I asked only for your company this evening. Your father owed my father, and this is the manner of payment. Your visit here. After this, you will be free. We shall never require this of you again. Oh, please, I've never harmed you, and I will not harm you, he snapped. Eat your bread and listen. Then perhaps you will understand, you goddamn stupid bitch. I can't believe he called her a stupid bitch. She looked at the bread she held as if seeing it for the first time. I can really eat? Slowly, he cautioned. One small bite at a time. Like so. He took a delicate bite of his own. She would well before swallowing. He was well aware that a hungry peasant tended to gulp good food, fearing it would vanish. He did not want the girl to make herself sick. He asked a mansplain how to fucking eat. She took a bite, emulating him exactly. Fifteen years ago, the sorcerer was preparing a major spell. Perry said. For this he required a blood sacrifice. So he bought a baby. As you know, such babies are for sale by poor families who have too many to feed already. She knew. She chewed deliberately, watching him. I was that baby. It was my destiny to be cut and bled on the altar, my life's blood lending substance to the potency of the spell. I believe it was a weather spell. There had been a drought, and the lord of the manor feared for his crops and the wild animals on his preserve. He did not want to suffer poor hunting, so he hired this service of the sorcerer in the year of our savior, 1190. The sacrifice was to be private. 
because the Holy Church frowns on human sacrifice. <laughs> Jesus. He paused, glancing at her. She watched him as if mesmerized, slowly chewing. But the abbot somehow learned of it, Perry continued after a moment. He showed up at the site in person. What's this noise of sacrifice, he demanded. You know it is forbidden to cut a living human baby. And naturally, the Lord had to disavow it, because the abbot could make things very difficult for the progress of his soul to heaven. No, 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 abbot, you misunderstand, he protested. This is no human sacrifice. We have a fine sheep for that. And he signaled to his minion to fetch a sheep from the herd. Then what is this human baby doing here, the abbot demanded, for he was no fool. The lord had to think fast. Why, this is the sorcerer's newborn son, he explained. But the sorcerer is not married, the abbot pointed out. That is why he is adopting this fine baby. The abbot looked at the sorcerer whom he didn't like because magic was, strictly speaking, forbidden outside the auspices of the church. But on the occasion, the community did need the professional touch as now, so the sorcerer was tolerated. The abbot saw a way to make the sorcerer really uncomfortable, and he pounced on it. I am very glad to hear that, he said, rubbing his hands together. Yes, that makes me so uncomfortable. I'm very glad to hear that. Could you not ever say that to me again? I, I mean, I, I feel like going home and crying and masturbating myself to sleep. For God's sakes. All right, so we, we know enough about Perry. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here because uh, there's a point to this. Jesus Christ. I mean, I want to get to other scenes in this, and this is just taking forever. Oh, my God. I mean, this chapter goes on way too long, and normally I would stop and find where I'm going to read next, but for God's sakes. All right. Do you not wonder why I have not done it long since instead of talking with you? I have been asking you that. Can you not accept that what I'm telling you is true? I cannot. Then let me show you the nature of my power. She tried to shrink back against the hearthstones. I believe it already. Look at me, Jolie. Gaze into my eyes and do not flinch. She nerved herself for the inevitable and obeyed. Perry invoked the magic of mesmerism. He assessed her mind through her eyes and made it responsive to his verbal commands. She would now obey any reasonable directive, and any unreasonable directive, if it were suitably couched to seem reasonable. Almost anything could be done with a mesmerized person if the sorcerer was sufficiently skilled. Listen to me, he said. Believe what I say. Do not question it. She nodded, her eyes fixed on his. I'm about to teach you to fly, he said. Follow my instructions and you will fly. Are you ready to fly? Oh, God. This dialogue. I'm about to teach you to fly. Follow my instructions and you will fly. Are you ready to fly? Fly, fly, fly. She hesitated, obviously wishing to question this, but constrained by his injunctive against 
injunction against that. She nodded, ill at ease, despite the power of the spell. Spread your arms, he said. She did so. Now the holes in her dress were revealed. She had held her arms close to her body before, hiding the condition of the dress. Stitching had made up much of the damage, but it was not enough. He could see a portion of her right breast through the stitching. If you were 12 years old and you were reading this, you'd probably get a boner. The breast was small because she was young and because she was ill-nourished. Still, it threatened to distract him from this demonstration, so he forced his gaze away from it. You are now poised for flight, he said. When you flap your arms, you will rise into the air. Be careful, because the space is limited here, and you do not want to bang into the roof. Do it slowly and remain in control. Still, she looked doubtful. Flap your arms, he said. She lifted and dropped her arms, imitating the motion of the wings of a bird awkwardly. Did you really need to describe that? You are now rising from the floor, he said. Look down, what do you see? She remained on the floor, moving her arms, but her face, as she looked down, changed. Sheer wonder showed. I am hovering in the air, she exclaimed. I have taught you to fly, he said, but you are as yet clumsy. It takes practice to do well, but when you can do it well, we can fly outside. Now come down carefully. She changed her motions, then her knees bent, and she almost lost her balance. She recovered and stood normally, her bosom heaving. I am down. <sighs> Why does she have to announce that she's back on the ground? Why? And why Why is he continuously... He's continuously drawing attention to her boobs. Why does he need to keep pointing out her boobs? We're going to skip ahead to chapter 7 on page 121. This is entitled Lila, which is, for some reason, the renamed Lilith. I mean... I don't know why she has to conceal her true identity when she tells him directly, I'm here because Lucifer sent me, but here we are. In the spring of 1242, Perry was taking a walk out around the monastery grounds. He sought, as always, to reconcile the evil he found in himself with the good work he was doing. He had continued to deal with heretics, garnering their conversations when others had failed. Why was he unable to resolve the sin on his own conscience? Because you do not wish to, Perry. He jumped. There beside him was the figure of an attractive young woman. He had not seen her at all. Indeed, there should be none here, not even a nun. He stared at her. First of all, he was not talking out loud. He was just thinking, and she's somehow able to read his mind, which is not one of her abilities, by, by the way. He just put that in here. Now, that was something that I did in my early writing, and when I had my girlfriend at the time read early drafts of Demise of the Trinity, she pointed out that there were, t there were times where it seemed that Lucifer could read characters' minds, and I, I changed that because... For one thing, it's inconsistent with the character, and also, it's dumb. He jumped. There beside him was the figure of... Uh, I already read that. Jesus Christ. She smiled back. 
Why, why do we need these, these basic instructions as to how to imagine, these basic details as to how to imagine the scene? He stared at her. She smiled back. Not even Bukowski would do that. She wore the long flowing hair bound back by no more than a fillet and the, sing- the single long dress of the ordinary unmarried girl. But she was hardly ordinary, exclamation mark. Her hair had the luster of gold. Her eyes seemed golden too, glowing like tiny disk of the sun, and the contours of her body thrust against the silken cloth of her garment, making it... What? Making of it a statuesque configuration. Jesus. She reminded him somewhat of Jolie, as she had been in the day of her mortal beauty. But this woman was more than that physically. She was like Venus clothed. He fought past his amazement. There can be no woman here, he exclaimed. Really? she asked, her lips quirking with amusement. What of your ghostly lover? Who are you? he demanded. I am Lila, sent to corrupt you. He had expected some sort of evasion. This brought him short, short again. You are a ascending of Lucifer? That is true, Perry. Wow, amazing dialogue. That is true, Perry. Could it be? Certainly. That would explain her sudden appearance and the way she knew his private name, never voiced in the monastery. Still. This fucking paragraph begins with, could it be, question mark. Who is the narrator talking to here? Is is there an unnamed narrator who is telling the story, who is winking at us? I don't think so. And yet, could it be? And then still, that's how the paragraph ends, with the word still. This isn't a text message. Lucifer works by deception, he said. If you were from him, you should not tell me so. (laughs) Lucifer is the father of lies, she agreed. But the truest lies have the semblance of truth. The truest lies have the semblance of truth. Would that make them a lie? Jesus, we underlings are not permitted to lie freely. That is the province of the master. Thus, I will always speak the truth to you, though you may not always wish to hear it. I don't believe you. You will, in time. A problem, brother. Perry turned guiltily. Another friar was approaching. How would he explain the woman? But the other gave no sign of seeing the woman. I saw you pause and gesture as if disturbed. Indigestion? Yes. In this century, they are all suffering from indigestion all the fucking time. I thought I saw something, Perry said lamely. We're skipping ahead a little bit here. Be gone, Perry cried, jabbing the cross at her. She clicked out of sight. Jolie appeared. You foiled Lucifer, and now he is angry. He has sent his minion to wreak vengeance on you. He can't touch me. Or you, Perry said. We are secure in the bosom of Jesus. 
That's what you think, hypocrite, <laughs> Lila exclaimed. Perry lifted the cross. The demoness retreated to the farthest cor- corner of the chamber. No, don't drive her out yet, Jolie said, reappearing translucently. Find out how she thinks she can do it. Perry looked from one to the other. You can coexist, after all. She is fundamentally good. I am fundamentally evil, Lila said. We can coexist. We are merely unable to be close to each other. Then what of me, he asked. You are mortal. That makes a difference? That makes the difference. Good and evil coexist in all mortals. It is the struggle between the two that makes mortality what it is. Mortality is the battleground. You know that, Perry. You have studied evil more than any other living man. Perry nodded. He did know it. He just had not been thinking coherently. How is it that you were able to come here to the order dedicated to the eradication of evil. Dedication to the eradication of heresy, Lila said. The distinction is significant. She was entirely too sharp, exclamation point. To corrupt me, he continued. How can you hope to do that? Because you have planted the seed of evil in yourself. I am here to make it grow. Without the seed, I would be powerless against you. The corruption had to start within yourself. What corruption, Jolie demanded. The demoness eyed her knowingly. You should know, pretty spirit. You started it. The loving, Jolie cried, stricken. The sex, Lila said. Oh my God. (laughs) to love is holy if it is of a good person or good cause but to tempt a man into sinful sex oh Jolie's exclamation was pure anguish as she faded out I need another drink after that Mm. I'm drinking aloe vera juice from my yeti mug today she could not have done it had i not cooperated perry said she is good she meant no harm true perry lila said advancing she is good she meant no harm in addition she is beyond adjustment of her balance it was set at the time of her death but you are mortal you knew it was sinful Yet you did it, and did it with sinful joy. Two nights, each a multiple effort. Does that mean that he couldn't get it up? A surprising performance, considering your mortal age. And then, enough, he cried, lifting the cross. Do you use the cross to banish the truth? Lila asked as she retreated. Perry turned, found his bed, and sat on it hard. Yes, we needed to know how hard he sat on the bed. It was the truth. He had done wrong, comma, knowingly. The demoness advanced again, comma, unchallenged. 
But it was not the sin that made the opening, for the flesh is ever weak. You had succumbed and repented and confessed and done proper penance. You would have been absolved, and this, too, you well know. The opening was made by your decision to conceal your weakness. When knowingly you failed to seek absolution, you practiced a deliberate deception, and that, my dear mortal, provided my lord Lucifer his wedge against your soul. Her truths were hammering at his mind. He had done it in italics. He had practiced deceit, which was a lie. That lie had put him into the power of the Lord lies. I must seek absolution now, he said, and give up all you have gained, discrediting yourself, your monastery, and indeed the Dominican order, the demoness asked derisively. I think not. Better that than the lie, he cried, and that is another lie, Lila said. Again, she was devastatingly accurate. He knew he could not do that to his work or his order. He could not throw away thirty years of his campaign against evil at a single stroke, discrediting everything. He was locked into his lie because of the enormous cost of expiation. Lucifer is having his way with me, Perry said brokenly. You flatter yourself, mortal, Lila said. Lucifer has not yet begun to have his way with you. This is the, this is only the opening. Have you any notion how angry he is with you? Perry recovered a portion of his humor. I dare say you will inform me, demoness. Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read this fucking paragraph. Fuck that. Get away from me, harlot, he exclaimed, almost spitting into that awesome channel. Make me mortal, she taunted him. He jerked the cross up, aiming for the center of her body, but she was gone. Jolie reappeared. Oh, Perry, what have I done? At this point, there are probably some people out there who think that this is fucking awesome. I mean, when I first read this, I thought it was fucking awesome, but I was 15. So, my... My thoughts on, not, it wasn't about women, because this is just, I mean, she's a demoness, this is true to her character, but he writes Joe Lee is pretty ignorant, and then you have Lila, where her only real value so far is that she's tempting him to have sex with her, so, you know, we don't have much backstory on Lila slash Lilith. One of the things that I try to do in Demise with Lilith is give her a tragic backstory where she was kicked out of Eden by Adam and accepted into hell by Lucifer and then she has used herself to an advantage because she appears as every to, to every man and woman as the most attractive person in the world. So that is kind of a cool thing, I'd like to think. And she gives her opinions on things that have nothing to do with sex. She has an interest in things outside of just fucking and tempting men. And she has a, a resolve, a constitution about her. 
whereas this Lilith is just practically raping Perry throughout this scene. Anyway, Jesus Christ. And and you'll see what I mean as I read this. Perry glanced directly at her, about to make a sharp retort, but it was stifled, unspoken. This time, the demoness was naked, lusciously so. Her full breast did not sag in the manner of most mortal breast. They were erect and proud like breast implants. Her belly did not protrude. It was almost flat, just slightly rounded. Her hips flared in a manner that, Damn! Perry muttered, <laughs> wrenching his gaze away. Why is Perry able to interrupt the narrator? Her hips flared in a manner that... And then Perry says, Damn. He's not narrating this. Perry's not shouldn't be able to interrupt the narrator. You're learning the language, Lila said. He ripped, acro- he ripped the cross from its chain and threw it at her. The demoness faded. The cross struck the wall and fell to the floor. Fairy, Perry, Jesus, <laughs> felt a pang of guilt and remorse. That was no way to treat the cross, exclamation point. Lila reappeared, comma, immediately before him, comma, still naked. You treat your silly icon the way you treat your silly order. With contempt, she said. Get up, spawn of Lucifer, he cried. I told you before, Perry, you have to make me. She put her hands on her hips, her legs well spread, and inhaled. He swept his hand up, but he no longer held the cross. His fingers struck her in the crotch, which was furry and warm. He had expected her to vanish before his hand swept through that region. For a moment, he was too appalled to move. She snapped her legs together, pinning his hand. Well now, that is more like it, lover. I thought you would be more reticent at first. He yanked his hand back, but she remained clamped. He only succeeded in drawing her more closely to him. She fell toward him, smiling, her breasts swinging close to his face. Damn you! He repeated. Yes, lover, I am damned, she breathed, and you will be too when you accept me. She caught a hand behind his head and pushed his face forward into her bosom. When a man is resisting a woman and she does this, this is sexual assault. Ladies out there, don't do this to men. If they don't want it, don't force them into it. That's rape. Jesus. <laughs> Perry was not so so far addled as to compound his error. Bless you, he exclaimed. Abruptly, she was gone. He was left hunched over, one hand extended. Skipping ahead a little bit to 132. Hello, sinner, it was the demoness. You said you would remain away for, Perry broke off, realizing that it was now the same hour that she had left the day before. She had been true to her word. Let me help you with that, Lila said. Perry smiled grimly. You can't, and if you could, you wouldn't. I'm preparing to make my absolution and depart the order so that the evil may be gone from me. You can't do that, she said confidently. The knowledge of what I offer you 
is percolating through the layers of your desire, and you must accept it. What do you offer, he flared, tawdry sex at the expense of my soul, and even that I can have with my beloved wife after I leave the order without compromising my honor or my soul. Tawdry sex has its appeal, she said. Gaze at me and tell me that you have no interest. He glanced at her. Sure enough, she was naked again. (laughs) Her body glistened as if she had just come from a swim in a lake of oil and every part of her was full and vibrant. You know, there are so many different ways to describe a naked body. But I can't help but wonder if this description is just too much. We already know she's hot. We don't need to know that when she's naked, she's hot. This is implied by the fact that she's a Lilith and she's already been able to hold his hand in her crotch without any issue because he subconsciously wants it. Anyway, Perry was silent. He knew she would give the lie to any denial he tried to make. He knew she would give the lie to any denial he tried to... I don't know. That's not a sentence. And this is hardly all I offer, she continued. I told you this is just the beginning. Perry knew that he would fetch out his cross and banish her, but he did not. You offer damnation, he said shortly. That too, of course, but damnation is not really that bad. I'm damned, but quite satisfied with my limited existence. Lucifer can be an excellent master for those who serve him well. You have always been damned beyond any hope of redemption. Therefore, you cannot know the joy of salvation. You are no judge of it. By that term, you mean residence in the upper region after death. He looked at her again. Why why couldn't she just say heaven? Jesus Christ. She was now quite close to him, opening her arms in invitation. Her effort to tempt him was obvious, but that hardly diminished its effect. You cannot say the word salvation or heaven, he asked. That is correct. That explains it. Upper region, though, Jesus. That is correct. Or the term for your icon, or any number of words relating to the other power. Sometimes I can use variants if I mean them ironically, such as angelic in italics. But I am no more limited than you in this respect. I cannot say, I, I, whoa, I can say any word I choose. Oh, try this one, she paused, paused and spoke a word of such horror and evil that Perry was appalled. What? Okay, so Piers Anthony's not going to tell us what this word is. And here's the funny thing. The next line, he has asterisks. Four asterisks as if he's censoring a word. This book, where this woman is raping this man and her only value is in her body and the fact that she's hot, he can't put a four-letter word in here. So, let's just continue. She smiled. That is too strong. Then let's make it easier. Say curse bleep. Curse what? The four-letter name of a variant of your god, which I cannot say. 
I can't do that, he exclaimed, then realized that he had conceded her point. Okay. What four-letter word for God is there besides Lord? I, I, I don't know. But I was about to explain what else I offer you, she stepped toward him. He grabbed for the cross. Wait, Perry. Of course I can't show you if you do that any more than you could show me anything if I held you at bay with an infernal talisman. You must be fair. Why should I be fair to a demoness? Because if you're not, this is a signal of evil. A closed mind is open for evil. You know that. He did know that. Is this Ron Howard narrating this shit? What then? She stepped toward him and put her arms around him briefly. He tried to suppress his consciousness of her beautiful body, knowing that it was only a construct of ether. There, she said, satisfied. Have you a mirror? Mirrors were rare. But he did have one. Used occasionally in researches, he brought it out. Uh, what? So, mirrors are rare in this, this time period. I can accept that. But he's using it for research? What does he need? Is he drawing himself? Anyway. He looked at his face. A younger stranger gazed back at him. You haven't enchanted me. No, only your aspect. I have restored to you the semblance of your youth. Now you look half your present age. Perry looked down at his body. It felt lighter and stronger, but he could not tell whether it had changed. Take off your robe. In front of a... She laughed. A woman? Perry, you know that I am not a woman! Exclamation point. I am nothing more than a foul spirit whose presence you may ignore. She was right again, overcome by curiosity. Actually, he can't ignore, because if he tries to do that, or send her away, she'll try to rape him. Perry doffed his robe and looked down at his naked body. Again, with the naked body. Nude. He could just be looking down at his body. I mean, if he doesn't have any clothes on, it's implied that he's naked. It was lean and firm, a contrast to his present corpulent and wrinkled one. Yes, that tends to happen when you get younger. It can perform as youth does too, Lilla said, stepping into him and embracing him. Hey! Perry reached for his cross, but could not find it. You set the icon aside with your robe. But do not be concerned. I will tell no other person what you do with me. She rubbed against him. See? You have excellent reaction time now. Perry wrenched himself away and dived for the cross. As he touched it, Lila vanished and his body reverted to its normal state. He scrambled back into his robe. Okay, so here's a playback of what just happened. This woman that he has deemed a demoness has instructed him to take his robe off. He has done so. He has let her embrace him. And as he has tried to reach for his cross, this phallic thing, to get away from her, uh, he has ran like a little boy away. And he obviously feels shame about this, but 
I mean, he took his fucking robe off in front of her. If the narrator is is detailing all this shit in the most bland way possible, why hasn't he detailed the fact that Perry obviously wants to fuck this woman? Jesus. I regret I cannot give you extra life, Lila said from across the chamber. Only my lord Lucifer can do that, and he really does not have that in mind for you at this time. But you can have much greater joy of your present life. Get away from me, temptress, he gritted. Now, Perry, you know that I do not respond well to that type of demand. Perry nerved himself and forced a smile. Please, if it pleases you, depart for a while. That's better, she disappeared. In the next chapter, which is entitled Lucifer, Lilith successfully coerces Perry into having sex. So I'm going to... Let me go back a page so I can start this paragraph. That is a useful device for reticent maidens who are constrained not to confess the base desires they feel. They would have it that they are powerless to prevent being ravished, but that is legal fiction. We are experienced in all manner of fictions in the kingdom of lies. She stroked her body against his. Perry knew he should protest, but he did not. She proceeded to make love to him while he lay almost unmoving. Technically, she was doing it, not he, but he could no longer deny that she was doing what he desired. Yeah, that's fucking gross. Um, She brought him to a phenomenal climax enhanced by his great guilt. I had hoped... You would be more of a challenge, she remarked sardonically as he was in the throes of it. Then, as he spasmed, she faded away, leaving him to foul himself. That, of course, was the finishing touch. He felt completely dirty and ashamed. Never again, he swore, but knew even then that he swore falsely. Apparently, five years passes, and we are brought to the scene. So Lila made a circle in the air of his chamber with her finger. As that circle closed, the circle filled in, becoming a disc. She hooked her thumb into the side of that disc, and it swung open like a door. Beyond it was a tunnel. After you, lover, she said, gesturing into it. Again, we don't need this direction. Perry climbed in. At first, the tunnel was large enough only for his body on hands and knees, but soon it widened so that he could stand. Lila joined him, showing him the way. Again, we don't need this direction. They followed a descending spiral down an increasingly intricate network of chambers and passages. They were, he realized, on their way to hell. At length, they reached a grand nether audience chamber. There, on a golden throne, sat the Prince of Evil, Lord Lucifer. He was a darkly handsome figure with a well def- with well-defined horns and tail, exactly as represented in contemporary paintings. Obviously, the artist had had infernal inspiration. Bow down, Lilith whispered. Prostrate yourself before the sun of the morning. Perry hesitated. The what? My lord Lucifer, the morning star, as he was known before the fall, get down. So the friar shows doubt, Lucifer boomed. For that will I do him one disfavor. Friar, 
I tell thee what thou dost not wish to know, the date of thy death. It is precisely three years hence at the hour. Uh, Perry dropped to the floor, prostrating himself before Lucifer, and the malignant voice cut off. The Lord of Lies was satisfied. The Lord of Lies. Did that mean that this cruel information was a lie? That Lucifer was merely taunting him with a fallacious date of demise? Well, there's that word again. The friar still doubts, Lucifer burned again. To hell with him. Suddenly, flames rose up around Perry. They closed in on him, their heat excruciating. His robe caught fire. He scrambled to his feet and leapt out of the circle. He struck the ground, rolling, but the material of his rose blazed up again the moment it was upward. He tore the robe off, getting free of the agony only when naked, and found himself the sinusure of a multitude of eyes. What is this word? Sinosure? I've never, before now at least, I don't think I've ever read it. The following scene is obviously something that I took inspiration from, although I don't know how knowingly I did it since I wrote the scene in, I think, 2019, and I hadn't read this in over a decade. But this is the scene where Perry essentially kills Lucifer. And this scene is similar to when Birch kills Lucifer with Lilith present. Anyway, Perry summoned his last resolve as she hugged him. No. Lucifer's lips curled into a sneer. I will banish her to that very fire awaiting you, mortal fool. She will suffer only while you remain alive. Then your soul will replace her there, and she will not exist. Take your time about dying. Lucifer made a gesture. Lila clung to Perry, and Perry did the only thing he could think of. He invoked his mirror spell, his shield against hostile magic. All of his remaining strength went into it, and he knew that the strain was destroying his heart and that he would be dead in a moment. But Lila would spend no time in the agony of the flame. Lucifer's magic bounced. Suddenly, Lucifer himself was bathed in flames. He disappeared, screaming. Okay, so this brief description here is not really fitting to the scene. I feel that, you know, it doesn't have to be prolonged, but the fact that it's he disappeared, comma, screaming, that's how you decide to kill Lucifer, this amazing literary character. Jesus. Lila lifted her head. You did it, she cried. Take the office. Take the office. Perry's heart was fibrillating, going into his final throes. What? Assume the office, she screamed at him. His brain was clouding. I assume the office? Flame coalesced about him, but it did not burn. Choose your title, she cried. Look, Lilith, he gasped. I, your title. Satan, he repeated. Choose your form. What? It must be now at the offset. Your true form for the office. Choose your form. I choose the form I was at age 25. 
Choose your consort. Okay, listen. We've had enough of this book. You get the point. Perry becomes Lucifer, and then he starts turning into Walter White, where he has a moral decline. He thinks that he can do things for good. Instead, he mistreats people. He starts fucking a lot of different women in hell. La-di-da. The rest of the book is... I don't know if it's better than the first part of the book, honestly, but I mean, Jesus Christ, I, I I guess it's consistently shitty. Since I brought it up, I think it's only fair that I read the scene that I wrote that's similar to Piers Anthony. And the thing is, is that I'm not doing this to say that I'm better, but I'm doing it because... I, I want to show that this novel actually did inspire me, even though I'm shitting on it now. But this scene takes place in Demise of the Trinity, which is my first novel. And Birch, who is kind of the hero of the novel, has just jumped on a train to kill somebody that he was misled into killing. He decides not to and spares them because he realizes that he's been lied to by Lilith. And so... He jumps off the train, and he is now going to confront her. Rolling to the ground, I am stranded somewhere near Virginia. Even if Lucifer didn't lead me on through lust, he dangled what I want in front of me. He wasn't lying about haunting me. What can I do to stop evil from following me, though? And the Mustang pulls through the trees and parks in front of me. The redhead rolls down the window, her heart-shaped glasses protecting me from those warm blue irises and she beckons to me with a wave I'm going to shoot her pretty face off then await Lucifer's arrival out I open her door and pull the vixen to the ground tossing the car keys across the train tracks I aim the sig sour on my true enemy she's the messenger but I was about to murder Caroline for something that didn't affect me so now I'm embracing the evil for the sake of invoking it Birch, don't, she screams. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do the voice, okay? Just don't make me. Smoke Smoke surrounds us. As I bend over, choking on fumes, Lilith clamors through the grass, and I fire. But the bullet sticks into the ground instead. Someone pushes me, though I catch myself before falling, and I see Lucifer and the gray mist around us. Ignorant, he bellows. You're the definitive fool. As flames spark in the grasp around me, I let them lick at my skin as I return Lucifer's glare. He thinks I'll run away in peril peril, or allow his distractions to save the woman from my gun, but I'm audacious enough to fire at him. I'm more shocked when the light disappears, smoke evaporates, and Lucifer holds his hand over his chest. My shot actually hit him, and I wasn't expecting such an outcome. He's the biblical definition of evil, yet I'm standing over Lucifer as if he's a wounded soldier without a weapon. God damn the trinity, he spits. I fire again at his head, again not expecting to kill him, but he lies there with a hole in his head. No blood. He should be rising from the ground in a volcano blast of flames, yet he stays there. Lucifer can't be dead, though. He's the eternal lord of evil. Surely, as the figurehead, 
I'm not powerful enough to end his life. Birch, the redhead stammers. What? He's gone. You shot Lucifer. Guilt swallows me as if I committed the ultimate sin. This creature dead under my feet lived for centuries only to meet his demise at my hand. And I'm as significant to the universe as a bird's white shit stain on an 18-wheeler. Yet I'm shaking with regret and nausea grabs my insides. Please, God, she's on her knees praying to the sky. I renounce Lucifer and give myself back to you. Who are you? I keep my eyes on Lucifer, expecting him to revive himself. Lilith, she says, harlot of hell, first wife of Adam. Grasping at my legs, Lilith's face turns from a smooth, pale vessel of lust into a decaying, breathing corpse as her skin peels and her teeth grow jagged and sharp. Beneath the most beautiful woman I've ever saw, I ever saw, is charcoal skin that begins to look like scales on a snake. Seeing this creature decompose shakes me to my soul. I'm yours for eternity. If you accept me as your own, please spare me. And if I don't, my soul will melt through this earth and enter hell for eternity. Then stop. I accept you, Lilith. The ground begins to pulse beneath us. Lilith takes my hand and her beauty returns as Lucifer's corpse turns to dust and a red light forms where he died. Consuming us, the bright stream shoots through me and I feel my muscles stop shaking as I seem to reset as if I rested for ages. My focus heightens. Smell quickens and ears open. And as if obtaining knowledge of the world in a single moment, I understand that I performed God's right through extinguishing Lucifer. Therefore, I possess Satan's power, a feeling I never knew before as an invincible weakling. I see it in you, Lilith exclaims. You're more than the figurehead now. What's more powerful than the figurehead? You're the last of the Trinity, she says. It ends with you. To be fair, I think that that scene's perfectly fine, but there's a lot that I wouldn't do now compared to, to then. I've written several other novels since then, and my latest novel, Birch, based on the gentleman that was in that scene, is out now. So you can go buy that and read it and tell your grandma about it. But I... I'm very happy that you chose to listen this far into the podcast. I'm so pleased that you decided to share your time with me this weekend or this week or whenever you're listening. I love you. You're a beautiful son of a bitch. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Happy reading. Happy sucking. Happy sucking.